Hi, and welcome to Sisters Love Podcast. My name is Shelly. And my name is Shannon. We are sisters and we talk about what we love to watch, love to learn, love to love, love to read. Well, you get the idea. Today, we're going to talk about each of our top three books of 2020. As our listeners know, we love to read, so we thought we would share each of our top three favorite books we read this year. I'm also a huge sucker for end-of-year lists. I read every one I can get my hands on, whether I know the critic or the publication. They're just so much fun to me and serve as a time capsule for the year. I also learn about books, movies, and albums that I may not have read, seen, or heard that I can add to my list. A year-end book roundup seemed extra appropriate this year since Shelley has become a super reader. I should note that since I began my obsessive reading adventure in August, I have discovered that I absolutely love the fantasy genre. Thanks to TikTok, I also learned that there are two distinct subgenres, low fantasy, which includes stories told in this world, and high fantasy, which occur in created worlds. This is some foreshadowing because all three of my books are from the fantasy genre. My first favorite is The Bone Shard Daughter, a high fantasy book by Andrea Stewart. The book is described on Goodreads as... In an empire controlled by bone shard magic, Lynn, the former heir to the emperor, will fight to reclaim her magic and her place on the throne. The emperor's reign has lasted for decades, his mastery of bone shard magic powering the animal-like constructs that maintain law and order. But now his rule is failing and revolution is sweeping across the empire's many islands. Lynn is the emperor's daughter and spends her days trapped in a palace of locked doors and dark secrets. When her father refuses to recognize her as heir to the throne, she vows to prove her worth by mastering the forbidden art of bone shard magic. Yet such power carries a great cost, and when the revolution reaches the gates of the palace, Lynn must decide how far she is willing to go to claim her birthright and save her people. Bone shard magic carries a special cruelty to it. The emperor requires his subjects to give up their bone shards when they're children. Some die immediately, but the ones that live age faster as the emperor puts the bone shards into use. The emperor says the resulting magical creatures, which he calls constructs, help protect the empire from an ancient enemy. But it seems more likely their purpose is to keep him in power. The Bone Shard Daughter is Stewart's debut novel, and boy, did she come out swinging. I am absolutely enthralled and obsessed with this story and world. The good news is that this is the first book in a trilogy. The bad news is is that the second book isn't out yet. Anyone who knows me knows I am not good at being patient. The wait will no doubt torment me, but will make the second book all the more enjoyable when I am able to get my hands on it later this year. I cannot even bear the thought of how long it will be until the third book, so I try not to even think about it. 
I agree with you on that front. I kind of wish I hadn't found out about the trilogy until all the books were out. That said, I think having support from dedicated readers helps ensure their publication. Apparently, the series has a name now, The Drowning Empire, which is an appropriate literal and metaphorical name. I was actually super excited to see the series have a formal name, which to me signals the publisher's support. The magic system is both easily understood, yet complex and fascinating. The world is also vividly described. One of its more interesting features is that the islands which compose the land float instead of being tethered in place, so they migrate with the seasons. This concept was so curious to me. I agree with you. The world building is incredible. I feel like I know exactly what the characters and settings look like. There were so many characters to root for, and while the plot clearly addressed the very serious issues of class and racial inequality, it was also thrilling. It just barely missed my top three. I too loved it so much. For me, it started a little slowly, but once I got the rhythm of the characters, I couldn't put it down. We're pushing this book onto everyone we know so that we can get more people to join our informal book club. I did not find that it was slow to start, but I am uncertain if that is because you warned me it felt that way, so I escaped it, or if I was genuinely hooked from the start. I am inclined to confirm the latter, because it is very true. My first favorite is Say Nothing, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe. The genesis of this book was a New Yorker article also by Keefe, about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. According to Wikipedia, the Troubles is generally understood to be a conflict about the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. Unionists, who are mostly Ulster Protestants, wanted Northern Ireland to remain within the United Kingdom, while Irish nationalists, who are mostly Irish Catholics, wanted Northern Ireland to leave the United Kingdom and join a united Ireland. The book centers around the murder of Jean McConville, a 38-year-old widow and mother of 10, who was taken from her Belfast home by masked intruders in 1972. She never returned. Her children split apart and in several cases placed in profoundly cruel orphanages, spent the rest of their lives trying to determine the fate of their mother and defending her from charges that she served as an informant for the British. I have to admit that while I was vaguely aware of the troubles, I only had a superficial understanding of it. This was still going on when we were in college. This is not ancient history. The book is roughly broken up into three parts. The first part and framing device is the abduction and subsequent murder of Jean McConville. The bulk of the story describes the violent efforts of the Irish Republican Army toward a united Ireland and secession from Great Britain. Finally, it chronicles the intrigue around the academic efforts of the Belfast Project, which documented the activities of the IRA participants via first-person interviews and subsequent efforts by the British government to use those interviews to support legal charges against the participants and other IRA members. 
Keefe approaches the effort with significant academic rigor. In addition to several trips to Ireland, he cites dozens of sources in the endnotes. The thing I like about the book is that while it clearly condemns the IRA's violence, it also provides a window into why the people involved did what they did. It's riveting, tragic, and informative, making the participants seem like fully realized people and not stereotypes in any way. This book is definitely on my want-to-read list. I often am not drawn to these types of nonfiction books because I feel it takes a rare combination of someone who is very informed on a particular subject and can convey that information in an easily understood and captivating way. I find that the Venn diagram of these two skills do not often overlap. However, in this case, I definitely think they do. A review by Maureen Corrigan on NPR had this to say, All the while I was reading Say Nothing, I kept thinking of Common Ground, J. Anthony Lucas's Pulitzer Prize-winning book about the Boston school desegregation battles of the 1970s. That's about the highest compliment I can pay to any work of repertorial nonfiction. Like Lucas, Keefe is a storyteller who captures the complexities of a historical moment by digging deep into the lives of people on all sides of the conflict. I agree with you about nonfiction books and was surprised that my best of this year included several. It's a testament to how great these books really are. I also love Maureen Corrigan and often enjoy the work she recommends, so I'm not surprised by her review at all. My second favorite book is The Once and Future Witches, a low fantasy story by Alex E. Harrow. The book is described on Goodreads as, In 1893, there's no such thing as witches. There used to be in the wild, dark days before the burnings began, but now witching is nothing but tidy charms and nursery rhymes. If the modern woman wants any measure of power, she must find it in the ballot box. But when the Eastwood sisters, James Juniper, Agnes Amaranth, and Beatrice Belladonna join the suffragist of New Salem, they begin to pursue the forgotten words and ways that might turn the women's movement into the witches' movement. Stalked by shadows and sickness, hunted by forces who will not suffer a witch to vote, and perhaps not even to live, the sisters will need to delve into the oldest magics, draw new alliances, and heal the bond between them if they want to survive. There's no such thing as witches, but there will be. Please tell me that also gives you full body chills. You know it does. I see this book in three layers, and at its foundation, this is a book about sisters. Secondly, those sisters are witches. And thirdly, their fight to bring witchy ways back is intertwined with the suffragist movement, given these two goals are very similar. Women have lost their power, and they aim to get it back whether by legal means or rediscovering the ways of witches and the innate power all women share. While this is a low fantasy book, it re-events elements of the past. This book centers around the power of women and thus many historical elements are feminized, such as the Brothers Grimm has become the Sisters Grimm, and so on. I'm a huge fan of books like this, and this one is on my definite must-read list. 
One of my all-time favorite novels is The Mist of Avalon, which flips the entire canon of Arthurian legends on its head by telling them from the point of view of the historically marginalized female characters, most crucially Arthur's witchy sister, Morgan Le Fay. Reimagining stories in this way provides a unique point of view and gives authors a way to tell new stories framed by familiar outlines. Harrow has provided 55 notes on Goodreads related to her various choices of alteration to historical facts, as well as how characters' names relate back to specific characters from history. Her first note of 55 reads, I used to be an academic, sort of. I got my master's in history and spent lots of hours pursuing, considering, weighing, and writing the truth. Now, of course, I'm a professional liar. This book in particular is full of lies. I lied about the names of cities and people and the dates of the Pullman strike and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. I made up an entire alternate history of witchcraft and workers' rights. I combined real people and condensed timelines so that I could fit something as vast and diverse and diffuse as the women's suffrage movement into a single book. But the best lies are the ones based on the truth. You know that Twain quote, history never repeats itself, but it rhymes? This book doesn't accurately reflect our history, but it rhymes with it. A small thing that amuses me is that Twain may or may not have said that. Nobody seems to know where it came from, but it persists, one of history's little white lies. So I want to thank you for putting up with 500 pages of fibs. I'm providing these notes for anyone who wants to know where it rhymes. This reminds me of the way the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Colson Whitehead approached historical fiction in his 2016 novel, The Underground Railroad. Whitehead reimagined the series of clandestine safe houses as an actual underground railroad. The details were fantastical, but the heart of the novel rang very true. My experience reading The Once in Future Witches multiple full-body chills, and crying three times is the type of experience that will lead me to read literally everything Harrow writes chasing the high of my first read of her work. Currently on my want-to-read list from Harrow is The 10,000 Doors of January, which is highly reviewed, so I'm pretty excited. My next favorite read of 2020 was Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators by Ronan Farrow. Wikipedia sums up the very complex plot nicely. He recounts the challenge he faced chasing the stories of Harvey Weinstein's decades of alleged rape, sexual assault, and sexual abuse of women in the case against him. Farrow argues that Weinstein was able to use Black Cube, a private Israeli intelligence service, to successfully pressure executives at NBC News to kill the story there, leading him to take it to The New Yorker, where it was published and helped spark the international Me Too movement, exposing sexual abuse, mostly of women, in many industries. Goodreads calls it both a spy thriller and a meticulous work of investigative journalism, and I think that's very accurate. The details on Black Cube are wild, and it keeps you on the edge of your seat as you watch the machinations of the Weinstein camp try to suppress the story. 
The book discusses how rigorously the New Yorker fact-checked the articles because Weinstein and his team were infamously litigious. In fact, the title, Catch and Kill, refers to the journalistic practice of a publication purchasing exclusive rights to a story, then burying it. In this case, the National Enquirer bought and buried several stories about Weinstein. When my book was misdelivered during the pandemic, I listened to the audiobook, which Pharaoh also narrates, and I found it riveting. Every night at dinner, Paul and I would eat quietly so we could listen. Pharaoh even does all the voices, including all the females, which is spectacular. He said in an interview I heard that Rosie Perez actually sent him a recording so he could get her voice just right. I was so happy that I read this just as Weinstein was convicted of felony rape in February and sentenced to 23 years in prison. Because if he'd gotten away with it, I'm not sure I could have contained my inner rage. I have not read this book, but I think I may since I know how it turns out. Jennifer Shalai with the New York Times reviewed the book after its publication. She noted the many challenges Pharaoh faced when he was researching. She says, Pharaoh documents the bafflement and frustration he felt as he and McHugh devised strategies to continue with their news gathering. Getting women to talk on the record about sexual trauma is exceedingly difficult, requiring delicate negotiations and an enormous amount of trust. When NBC ordered Pharaoh to stop his interviews, he was put in the position of trying to reassure his nervous sources while his employer wasn't reassuring him at all. Given how much Pharaoh had to overcome, it is amazing this ever saw the light of day, but thankfully it did. It makes me sick to think if the exposure attempts by the multiple people trying to bring the truth to light had failed, that Weinstein would have been able to continue his truly disgusting life. Thankfully, we don't have to wonder. My number one favorite book of 2020 is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. This book is described on Goodreads as A life no one will remember, a story you will never forget. France, 1714. In a moment of desperation, a young woman makes a Faustian bargain to live forever and is cursed to be forgotten by everyone she meets. Thus begins the extraordinary life of Addie LaRue, and a dazzling adventure that will play out across centuries and continents, across history and art, as a young woman learns how far she will go to leave her mark on the world. But everything changes when after nearly 300 years, Addie stumbles across a young man in a hidden bookstore, and he remembers her name. I think this definitely falls into the be careful what you wish for category of bargains with the devil. They rarely turn out the way you hope. This book is a beautiful work of art. The prose is so fluid, it feels like poetry. You know how people say the first line of a book should hook you immediately? True story. I'm one of those people. In my real life book club, we read the first paragraph of every selected book to each other. To be clear, do I think a book can be good without a good first paragraph? I do. 
but I also think it takes skill to start a book in a way that immediately hooks you. That's one of many reasons I'll never be able to write a book. I don't think I could get past the first sentence. Well, I'm not certain I wholly buy into that theory, but this book accomplishes that goal repeatedly. The first line of the book is, a girl is running for her life. The first line of chapter one, the girl wakes up in someone else's bed. Chapter six starts with, there is a rhythm to moving through the world alone. Each one of these singular sentences immediately entices me to continue. Before the book even officially begins, a quote from one of the characters is presented. The old gods may be great, but they are neither kind nor merciful. They are fickle, unsteady as moonlight on water or shadows in a storm. If you insist on calling on them, take heed. Be careful what you ask for. Be willing to pay the price. And no matter how desperate or dire, never pray to the gods that answer after dark. The writing is just so impeccable. And this story, oh, this story broke my heart in the most beautiful way possible. I wept. This book was a huge hit and generally very well received by critics. I read quite a few reviews in preparation for this episode, but I was especially struck by the one I read by Megan Callstrom on Slate. About Addie's quest to leave traces of herself behind, Callstrom writes, It's that particular aspect of the invisible life of Addie LaRue that keeps looping through my head in these days of the pandemic. Addie does not say much about physical illness, but it has a lot to say about how connection and love are always possible, even in the face of isolation. How we inevitably leave our mark in the world and on the people who cross our paths even in the unlikeliest and most fleeting of circumstances. It is easy to feel that, in the absence of traditional, tangible moments of connection, no such connection could exist, no mark could be made. And yet, as an acquaintance advises Addie, there are many ways to matter. I'm starting this novel once we finish recording, and I can not Wait. Similar to my experience with the Once and Future Witches, my love of the invisible life of Addie LaRue will propel me to read anything Schwab ever writes. Currently on my want to read list from Schwab is the Villains Duology and the Shades of Magic trilogy, currently burning a hole on my physical to be read bookshelf. You may be interested to know that Hallstrom also read the Shades of Magic trilogy and loved it too, but Addie LaRue is her favorite. I first talked about Crossings by Alex Landragon in our At Home Entertainment episode, but I couldn't miss the chance to discuss it again. It's that good. And it ticks an interesting box for me. I love fiction that is primarily fiction, but involves a historical character. In this case, the poet Charles Baudelaire. If you're like me and you enjoy a good first line, this book does not disappoint. As it starts, I didn't write this book, I stole it. Crossings is rich and complex, 
following two characters across time and geography as they cross over into other people, switching bodies with them. This makes them immortal for all practical purposes, assuming they continue to cross. The kicker is that except in rare cases, the person they cross into does not participate willingly, and they do not always realize who they are in the new body. There are also two ways to read this book, in a standard chronological order or using the special Baroness sequence order, and that one's much shorter. I didn't find much value in the Baroness sequence, primarily because the book is so lush that I would have hated to miss a single detail. I devoured this book and finished it in two days. There are literally diagrams online about the various crossings, but I really didn't need them. I read this book upon your recommendation and absolutely loved it. It was a prior selection of the Fantastic Strangelings book club to which we both belong, and it was the first book I chose to read of the prior selections I missed before I joined. One of the many elements I loved about this book is the inclusion of a high fantasy world within a primarily low fantasy book. The island where our two main characters originate is a created world where they learned the art of crossing. But once they leave that world, they spend the rest of their lives in the world we know, but with the magic they learned at home. Each life our characters lead as they cross from one body to another is so vibrant and fully formed. I always refer to this book as an epic story, because it is. This is Landragon's debut novel, and I am so excited to discover what he chooses to create next. Next, we have some honorable mentions. These books did not make it into our top three, but it was close. My first honorable mention is A Deadly Education by Naomi Novik. It is described on Goodreads as Lesson 1 of Skolomots Learning has never been this deadly. A Deadly Education is set at Skolomonts, a school for the magically gifted where failure means certain death, for real, until one girl, Elle, begins to unlock its many secrets. There are no teachers, no holidays, and no friendships, save strategic ones. Survival is more important than any letter grade, for the school won't allow its students to leave until they graduate or die. The rules are deceptively simple. Don't walk the halls alone and beware of the monsters that lurk everywhere. Elle is uniquely prepared for the school's dangers. She may be without allies, but she possesses a dark power strong enough to level mountains and wipe out millions. It would be easy enough for Elle to defeat the monsters that prowl the school. The problem? Her powerful dark magic might also kill all the other students. We mentioned in our at-home entertainment episode that there was widespread criticism regarding some very racially insensitive language that exists in this book. We noticed this too, and were frankly horrified. Novik has addressed this directly, apologizing and saying that this language will be removed from future printings. Several people rightfully pointed out that this is one of the many reasons the publishing industry needs more diverse representation, 
since not even the editors identified the problematic passages. This is the first book in a planned trilogy, with the second book set to be released in April of this year, which I already have on pre-order. The world-building is phenomenal, and the characters are diverse and complex. Also on my want-to-read list from Novik is Spinning Silver, a Rumpelstiltskin retelling. My honorable mention is Miles to Go Before I Sleep, a survivor story of life after a terrorist hijacking by Jackie Nink Flug with Peter J. Kislios. Truly, though, I put this book in its own category because it had such a strong impact on me. This was a selection from my IRL book club. One of our members is related to the author by marriage, and Miss Flug was even kind enough to attend our Zoom book club meeting. Flug was a passenger on Egypt Air Flight 648 in 1985 when it was hijacked by terrorists. They ultimately shot her, along with four other passengers, in the back of the head and left her for dead. While she does talk some about the hijacking, that's not really what this book is about. It's about her recovery journey, how she finds new purpose by becoming a motivational speaker, and the lessons she learned. Fluke provides concrete steps about how you can improve your own life, too. I don't typically enjoy inspirational-type books, but I adored this one. Fluke is heroic, not as much for having survived something so tragic, but for what she chose to do afterward. She also talks candidly about her faith in a way that really resonated with me. She says, Through the hijacking and years of recovery, I pulled God out of heaven. I no longer believe God is up in heaven and the devil is down in hell, that good and evil are out there somewhere. I believe that heaven and hell are not actual physical places, but states of mind, attitudes, and being we can all experience here on earth. I like this book so much, I even wrote an Amazon review for it, and I literally never do that. If you need to feel uplifted, I highly recommend you check this out. My final honorable mention is Zero Repeat Forever by G.S. Prendergast. It is described on Goodreads as, He has no voice or name, only rank. Eighth, he doesn't know the details of the mission, only the directives that hum in his mind. Dart the humans, leave them where they fall. His job is to protect his offside, let her do the shooting, until a human kills her. 16-year-old Raven is at a summer camp when the terrifying armored Knacks invade, annihilating entire cities, taking control of the earth. Isolated in the wilderness, Raven and her friends have only a fragment of instruction from the human resistance, shelter in place. Which seems like good advice at first. Stay put, await rescue. Raven doesn't like feeling helpless, but what choice does she have? Then Anax kills her boyfriend. Thrown together in a violent, unfamiliar world, Eighth and Raven should feel only hate and fear. But when Raven is injured and Eighth deserts his unit, their survival depends on trusting each other. I have to admit that while I understood the words you're saying are English, they make no sense to me at all. That's interesting. It makes perfect sense to me, and it definitely makes sense in the book. 
This is the first book in the next trilogy. The second book, Cold Falling White, is currently on my physical to-be-read bookshelf, and the third book has not yet been released. I learned of this book on TikTok, where it is getting rave reviews, and with good reason. The prose is very efficient. The author brings to life a vivid world and characters with streamlined storytelling, which I found very impressive. In researching reviews on this book, I found a helpful description from Kirkus. A group of teens resists a worldwide alien invasion. So listeners, now you know. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of our favorite books of 2020. And we'd love to hear about some of your favorites, too. Please join us next week when we discuss wildcard movies. We each picked three movies the other had not yet seen and made each other watch them. Will we like each other's selections? Tune in next Thursday for our discussion, including The Fall, Spy, Raw, and Shannon finally watches the original Jumanji. We love suggestions, so don't hesitate to let us know if you have ideas for future episodes. Email us at contact at sistersLovePodcast.com. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps people find a show. The Sisters Love Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Shelley Clark and Shannon Kelly. That's us. us. Music by Sean Mullins. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, keep finding things you love, especially each other. <laughs>